The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thank you, guys. Well, kids, you guys can be dismissed for Children's Church. As creatures that have been blessed with having a, a creative drive, I'm so encouraged when we can hear the story, but at times when we can hear the story sung. So, thank you. Let's pray, and we'll jump into the story. Lord, thank you that regardless of what has happened in our lives, good and bad, tragedies or victories, whether it's been lifelong struggles with brokenness and weakness and, and disappointments or whether we've lived a, for all intents and purposes, a reasonable life and good life. We thank you that the only thing that ultimately matters is the relationship that we have with you. Thank you that when we come to know you as Father, as Savior, as friend, that we can say regardless of the other trials and struggles that are going on in life, that we're good. Because the most important things that matter have been dealt with, and that is the relationship with you. Lord, as I pray, as we get to look at this beautiful miracle, this beautiful story, that we would be able to stop and to consider for ourselves what relationship we have with you. And that we would hear the testimony of this blind man. That while we might not know all the answers to the questions that are directed towards us, the only one that matters is the relationship that we have with you. And once we know that, everything else pales in comparison. Lord, just be with us now in your son's name. Amen. This story that I just read and we got to hear the song for has always stood out to me. Its beauty, its simplicity, its power just reveals the hearts of all the parties involved. This has been a story I've actually had an opportunity to preach a couple of times. I think this is my fourth. But this is the first time that I have gotten to preach this text in sequence. We said from the very beginning, we're in this whole sequence, the Feast of Booths, and all of the conversations, all of the declarations, all of the debates have been setting us up for this miracle. I can say that because this man, this no-name blind man, we don't know his name, we know nothing else about him except he was born blind and then he had sight, was there was, was divinely placed in that position at this time, at this feast, in this book for Jerusalem to see the power of God. But for us to see the power of God. 
I mean, we've said before, this eight-day period of time, this Feast of Booths, that's what we're dealing with, eight-day period of time, so stuck in John's heart and mind that when he sat down to write this gospel, he gave a significant portion of this gospel to this eight-day period of time. Well, I mean, we have gotten to see that he is the, the bread of life. We've gotten to see that he is the water of life. We've gotten to see that he is the light of the world. We've gotten to see that even before Abraham, he was there. And here at the end, we get to see this man who was formerly blind receive sight. There's so many different angles and conversations that take place in this one event. There's so many different trails that we could go on. I mean, we get to hear from the disciples. We get to hear from the average person on the street. We get to hear from the Pharisees. We get to hear from the parents of, of, the, of the man who had suffered so much. And we get to hear the surprising witness, which is this blind man. There's so many theological assumptions that are revealed in this whole episode. Like it starts with suffering. Like there was a conversation taking place between Jesus and the disciples on suffering. I'm out of the blue. Why suffering? And yet we get to look at the purpose of suffering. We get to look at the righteousness of Christ. We get to deal with, you know, whether healing on a Sabbath is an actual sin or not. We get to dabble in so many different theological categories. There's theodicy, the problem of evil. There's evangelism. There's apologetics. But in all of that, I want to remind us what we've been focusing on in the Feast of Booths. How we set up this whole discussion as we're looking at this period of time. Jesus has been in Jerusalem describing and comparing the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God. This whole time he's been comparing, you can either follow me, and this is what that looks like, or you can follow your religious belief, and this is what that looks like. And he's, he's pressing, every conversation has been pressing people into the thought of who are you actually going to believe in? Who are you actually going to sink your teeth into? What are you going to take to the bank and say, I am good before God because of this? And as we've said, the kingdom of man... Well, you're good before God because of the works of your hands. That's what the Pharisees have been continually demonstrating through every single argumentation. It's, well, we follow Moses, so we are good to go. We follow Abraham, so we are good to go. We're at this feast, so we are good to go. And yet Jesus has been revealing to them, you could have all of that. You can still suffer for your sins. Jesus has been walking around saying, the only person you need, the only thing you need is me. That's been what this comparison, this feast, what Jesus has been comparing. And this story is the perfect conclusion to reveal the concerns of your chosen kingdom. Because what we're going to see from all of the people involved in this is that this one miracle is going to reveal their hearts and what they're trusting in. Here's how I, I, I've been kind of picturing this story, and here's how we're going to look at it. This story is a prism of complexity. In a prism, it's that glass object with like triangular-shaped features inside of it that, that reflects light in different directions. One singular light goes into a prism, and out of the other side of the prism, you have a, a, a vast array of, of lights that shine forth. Well, that's very similar to what's going on here. The light of Christ shines into this blind man who is healed. And we get to see this mosaic of responses. Actually, we're going to see five different angles that come out of this story. We're going to look at the disciples first. 
We're going to see his neighbors second. We're going to look at his parents third. We're going to look at the Pharisees fourth. And then finally, we're going to get down to the blind man. Now, we're going to get through this quickly. I know this is a long story, so we'll jump into it. This prism begins with Jesus' disciples. They made assumptions about who actually was in control of life. Who is the authority? This story picks up kind of out of nowhere as they pass by. It really is like on just next day going by, the, the disciples are having a conversation with Jesus and they see this blind man sitting in the same spot that he's always been sitting because they knew that he was a blind man and they ask him a question. And it's a personal question between Jesus' and disciples and Jesus. And it's a question about suffering. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind and he would be relegated to a beggar sitting on the side of a street because he could do nothing else. Why'd that happen? I mean, this, th- notice that no one, there's, there's no thought in this question of like, well, hey, I'm going to say this in hushed tones because maybe this isn't like politically incorrect to say or maybe this is the right thing. No, this is the assumption. They assumed the baseline was somebody sinned for this man to be stuck in this blindness, for this man to be suffering in this way. So it, it, it wasn't catching anyone off guard of like, oh, you assume that there's a sinner here? No, they, that, that's what the expectation was. This blind man knew that people assumed somewhere in his life there was sin that would cause him to be stuck in this situation. A lot of this private conversation, Jesus reveals some amazing realities. Because out of this private conversation, we see Jesus' glory shine forth. What I love, though, about this, this blind man did not see this coming. He woke up on a regular Tuesday and just went back to his same spot and sat there, hoping that he could get enough money or enough resources to make it one more day. He was beyond hope at this point. He goes, I am a blind man. This is my life. I can do nothing else. I mean, we don't see the blind man calling out to Jesus as he walks by, like we can see in other stories. We don't see him running behind him, hoping just to touch the friends of his robe so that some power can leave him, and all of a sudden he can be healed. We don't see the blind man's friends dragging him to Jesus and saying, here, you can heal him. We see this guy just sitting there. No name. Who's that blind guy? Who sinned? And out of this private conversation, Jesus reveals that there's a greater plan in the works for this man. Read again, 9, 3 through 7. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Did you catch that? This blindness was allowed and ordained not as a punishment, not as as an act of, of judging this man, but so that it could be a platform to display the divine mercy and power of Jesus. I mean, that's kind of in the story, that's one of those realities that we can just gloss over. But this man was born blind so that Christ's power might be displayed in him. 
God being sovereign in this world when this individual was born. We don't know how old he is. But when the day that he was born, God knew you're going to be blind because there's a point in time during the Feast of Booths when Jesus and his 12 disciples are going to be walking by this exact location and you're going to be sitting there and I'm going to give you sight so that Jerusalem and more importantly, the entire world in the Bible might see my glory displayed in you. What I love about this is consider the day before he received his sight. Maybe he was having a bad day. Maybe it was one of these days where he was just like, why God? Why me? Why can't I see? Why am I the guy sitting here begging for my life when all these other people can see and have jobs and, and, and have and joy? Why me? Imagine the day after. How do you think he looked back upon that blindness? Lord, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be the instrument of your divine grace and mercy so that through me, people can see your glory. This, when, when God gets involved, because he's involved in everything, but when, when, when we can see the end from the beginning, it changes how we view those moments of suffering. Because instead of this, why me? It's like, I hated that. That stunk. But I'm thankful for it. Because through it, your glory got to be displayed. Side note, God still works in that way. There's still, I've, I've had moments in my life where I have hated what I've been going through. Either because it was a result of my own sin and my own stupidity or the result of somebody else's sin and somebody else's stupidity. I've hated where I've been and I've thought to myself, I do not want to be here. This is the worst thing in the world. God, I wouldn't say this because I'm a good Christian. You've made a mistake. And then I look back on it now and I go, I live it, I would relive it again for the lessons that I learned. I would relive it again because of how God's name was glorified. I'll take that on because I realized I needed that. That's what Jesus just did with this blind man. Moving on. Because this is really where the real drama begins. Jesus just said that this man is born blind so that Jerusalem and us are able to see the amazing power and grace of God. But as Christ's light is shown into this blind man and out of it, we see all of these different interactions occur in Jerusalem as a whole. The, the first one we get to see, point, it's the second group, but the first one that we can see after the fact is his neighbor's. Immediately, this man who had, I'm sure he had his corner, he had his spot, everyone went looking for him, they knew that he sat there, all of a sudden shows up seeing. And we see his neighbors get concerned. That doesn't happen, what just happened. Look at 9-8. His neighbors who had seen him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Is this not the guy who we're all used to seeing? How can he now see? Others said, no, no, no. He, he's, he, maybe it's like a long lost brother. He kind of looks like him. He's wearing the similar clothes, but he's actually not him. And so they asked him, are you the man? And he says, yes. I mean, just imagine, you're used to seeing the blind guy. And then all of a sudden the blind guy is the seeing blind guy. Like, wait a second. 
Have you been fooling us? When did this happen? We've seen you sit there for years. Why didn't you get up earlier? Why can you see? How is this going on? They also, I'm sure we're struggling because from the external appearances, this man was still a beggar. Still had dirty clothes, still had the skinny frame, still had that putrid stench. He looked the same way that he did when he was blind, except now he's not blind. But in this culture and understanding, think back to the opening question that we had. There's this understanding of, oh, if you're blind, therefore you must be in sin. So now this thought is, but you haven't changed any of the other parts of your life. You're still just as miserable as everything else. I mean, they, they had this like karma type aspect of, um, are, are, you know, you didn't fix anything. So how in the world can you now see? Well, these neighbors had no idea what to do with this. And so they did what they were trained to do. Let's go verify what we think happened with the authorities. I got to put the authorities in quotes because we're one of the distinctions here is who's actually the real authority. So they bring this blind man to the authorities, the Pharisees. And what the Pharisees think is that they are the authorities. Because if we keep reading in 9.13, we get... We get to this. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him again, How did you receive your sight? And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, Is this not, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can this man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Their lack of knowledge is um, humorous to me. And the Pharisees' lack of knowledge. But the blind man's lack of knowledge was offensive to the Pharisees. Notice how they're questioning him. They're asking him, why are you healed? Why did this take place? Wouldn't you first want to hear, congratulations, Jim, you can now see. Your life has completely changed. No, they're concerned with, that doesn't make sense. We don't have uh, an answer for this. How did this happen? So they first question him, says, how are you healed? It's the Sabbath. That shouldn't take place because... They're assuming that a healing is a work and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Therefore, if you work on the Sabbath, you're breaking our law and you're a sinner. So how are you healed on the Sabbath? The second thing that, that they're uh, concerned about, that it, it was an offense, was because clearly this man went to an outside source. Imagine when this child was born blind. His parents were concerned. Something, something's wrong. The child, it, it, he's not acting normal. He's not using his eyes like normal. Something's off. And they take him to the Pharisees who are there, who, who are the, the mediators, in their minds, between God and man. So we're going to take him to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are going to pray over him. The Pharisees are going to try what, what, what they can try in hopes to, to heal this blind child. So they take this man to the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew that he existed, but yet the Pharisees came up dry. Pharisees couldn't heal him. They had nothing to do. They could only look at them and say, he's relegated to blindness his entire life. We don't have the power. But they thought they were the most powerful in this way. And all of a sudden, this man goes to some outside resource. And they're like, wait a second. Who healed you? Because if we can't, who's more powerful than us? It's also offensive because this man seemed like he gave up hope. Seemed like he had just 
fell in line, you're going to be a beggar, you're going to be a blind man, you're going to go find, sit on some corner, and then all of a sudden, this man shows up with hope. How did this take place? You know, on, on TV, uh, we can see modern-day faith healers work. We can see where there's large crowds and a lot of pomp and circumstance and a Somehow flailing of jackets, I don't know what that is. You can see it on various TVs. And every time I see modern faith healers in action as they're parading around the people that, that, that they heal, I always question to myself, is that real? Did that person actually have a leg shorter than the other? Did that person actually have cancer? Did that person actually, whatever the ailment that, that the faith healer is healing. And I was thinking to myself, prove it. Side note, it was, it was interesting, it's kind of comical, that during COVID, many of these faith healing ministries shut down their programs in the hospitals because it was too risky. Just saying that speaks volumes for their ministries. It's a whole nother thing. The Pharisees have the exact same reaction. Prove it, blind man. Prove that this is not a simple party trick. Prove that you are actually blind. So what do they do? Go get his parents. So they got his parents. And they called his parents. And the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and he had received his sight until they called his parents and the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind and how does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son. I've named him Jim. This is Jim. This is Jim. Right, he's our son. And that he was born blind, but we do not know how he now sees. You should ask him. Notice what his parents are the most concerned about. They're scared of the authorities because they actually think that the, 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 the real proper authorities are the Pharisees. Because we have this parenthesis here in verse 22. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Christ, he is to be put out of the synagogue. So they said to his, so therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. His parents were so afraid of the consequences of what it would mean to, to declare, I don't know how my son now sees, but it's a miracle that he sees. And clearly he says, this guy Jesus must have made him see that he goes, ask him, he can take the full brunt of your persecution. If he, I, I don't want to speak on his behalf. He's of age. Go ask him. And you would think that his parents who... I'm sure wept over the struggle that this kid had all of his life, would be overjoyed. And they would turn to his son and go, hallelujah, how did this happen? Oh, he says it's Jesus. It must have been Jesus. Let's, hope, let's blame Jesus on this. And yet there's this cowardice that goes on. They're just pushing back the blame on his son. Notice up to this point in this story, when Jesus heals a blind man and demonstrates his power to the entire city. Not um, the power of his word, obviously, but the a power that is undeniable. People could look at this man and go, he was blind yesterday and he is seeing now. That when the light of Christ was shown into this man's life, and when the light of Christ was shown into this city, that people were more concerned with staying on the good side of darkness, more concerned of appeasing their perceived authorities, the religious leaders, than they were actually about worshiping Christ. 
I said this whole discussion has been this comparison between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of man, we are going to be judged based upon the works of our own hands. And more specifically, we're going to be judged based upon whether we are keeping the proper accounts with the kingdom of man and the way that the rulers of the prince of the power of the air wants us to live. Because the thing that in the kingdom of man that we're all afraid of is being canceled, right? The fact that that's actually one of the means in which it holds people in line. It's, oh, if you don't agree with us, if you don't say the right thing, if you don't go along with it, we're going to cancel you and reject you. But the kingdom of God is different. It says, no, you're not judged by the works of your own hands. You're judged by faith in Christ. That you can't do it perfectly. You are going to mess up. You are going to cancel yourself. But none of that matters because Christ lived a perfect life. Up to this point, these people demonstrate that what they are concerned about is, oh dear Pharisees, what are you going to do? Because I don't, I don't know what to do with this man who is formerly blind who now sees. And then we finally get to hear from the blind guy. And I, I feel for him because... I mean, imagine you, you wake up one morning and you're going to expect that you're just going to have a normal, stressful, struggling day. And then a side conversation between Jesus and his disciples takes place near you. You don't even ask to be a part of. And Jesus walks over and makes mud and puts that on your eyes. That's weird, let's just say that. And then you go to the pool and you wash because... You're going to believe Jesus, you're going to do that, or somebody's put mud on your eyes, so you have to wash it off. And, and then all of a sudden, you can see, and you spend the first moments of your life seeing, not celebrating your sight, but being accused of not following the right authorities. Living through this inquisition of how and why and what and who. And finally... The man is asked again because everyone is perplexed. Blind men don't see. That does not work in our equation. So they ask him again and we can finally hear from this blind guy. 24. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. At this stage, this blind man knew that his blindness was a gift. It was a gift both for him and for us. Because this blindness showed him who he actually needed to trust and follow. This whole story really serves as, as a living illustration for us all. And the illustration is this. That we are all the blind guy. We are all helpless. We're all in need. We're all a beggar sitting on the side of the street. Unable to save ourselves. At the hands of, of merciful people. But we don't view ourselves that way. Jerusalem didn't view themselves as the blind beggar. The Pharisees didn't view themselves as the blind man. They, they are offended at the sight of being called the blind man. Because what the blind man knows is his inability. He knows his weakness. He knows his brokenness. He knows that he can't do anything but sit there and wait for grace. But we don't like to be blind people. 
because we like to tell ourselves that we have our life together. We like to tell ourselves that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We like to tell ourselves that give us enough time, energy, and money, and we can figure out how to satisfy the deepest desires of our life. That's what the Pharisees have been living in. That's what this whole system of religiosity that they'd been shoved down their throats of do, 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 perform the law, obey the law, keep the law, and you'll be good before God. They thought they could keep it enough. This blind, this blind guy knew he couldn't. This blind guy knew that I, I, I don't have a chance. But when he's healed, it's offensive because the guy who did nothing got everything. And the people who did everything got nothing. But it, it reveals to us how, Christ's, how Christ works in our life. He's here to give the people with nothing everything. And the people who think they have everything nothing. Blindness is the greatest equalizer. Because in a world where we compare all, in, in, in a world with external means of comparison and priorities, all this stuff is lost on the blind guy. He doesn't see any of that. He doesn't care the last time somebody went to the temple. He doesn't care how many prayers somebody did. He doesn't care how, how much people give to the poor. What he cares about is who made me see. And that's Jesus. And how does he use this gift? He uses it to be a witness for Christ. The other conversation I want to have, or mini conversation here, is, is in a conversation about evangelism. I was actually having this with uh, a, a member last week. Just the thoughts of, we're living in this dark world, so many people have so many questions that they throw at us of how or why or what, and just trying to figure out what the, the Christian worldview looks like, trying to act like the Christian worldview is like the, a regular worldview of like, okay, what do I have to do? And, I, and, and the conversation that I was having with this person was very simple. I, and I had the blind man in my head at this point. I said, you know what? Sometimes the greatest evangelism conversation is this. I once was this. And now I'm that. And it's no result of my own. That's what the blind guy said. All these questions that people are throwing at him. How and why and what and when and where. I don't know. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. Essentially what he's saying is, I can't answer any theological test that you have about him right now. But here's what I do know. I was blind. And now I see. Sometimes the best evangelism conversation that we can have, the best testimony that we can have, isn't making sure that we use all of the right theological isms, quote all the right verses, but we walk up to somebody and say, can I tell you the hopeless wreck that I was even as the good Christian kid on the, on the earthly side the, the wreck that I was and yet God chose to save me and if he chose to save me he can save you because why in the world would he save me any more than he would save you it's this, it's this reality just coming from him it was like I have nothing to offer here and yet I can see well, we're going to take one last stop in this story and that is the conversation between Jesus and this man. Because again, side conversation with the disciples. Jesus walked over, put mud on his eyes, and the only thing recorded in the story that Jesus ever said to him was, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Like, 
nothing else. And whether it's just John telling the story in this way or, or whether it really was Jesus having a conversation with his disciples and more didn't take place. But this guy didn't have an explanation. When he left Jesus the last time, he thought, some joker just put mud on my face. I should go get that off. Now Jesus finds him again. Why? Because he'd been cast out. Because the kingdom of darkness hates the kingdom of light. Because the kingdom of man can't stand the kingdom of God. Because it's our way or the highway. So they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he found him. And he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? At this point he goes, I'll believe in whoever you tell me did this to me. Because this is amazing. He goes, you've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And imagine that for an evangelism moment, for a testimony moment. I can see and I believe the one who made me see. Maybe that's you today where you're struggling with assurance. You're struggling to be able to trust that what you believe in is true. One of two ways that I could point you to help uh, assure you of your assurance, and neither of them are look at your works. That's naturally where we go because that's what the kingdom of man tells us to do. Look at your works because you'll be judged by your hands. So look at what your hands have done. Have you been a good Christian? Have you fixed your life? Are you on this upward trajectory in your life where you're better than you were yesterday? Oh, you must be saved. I know a lot of really, really, really good moral people who disagree, who, who reject Christ. So morality isn't the answer. One answer is, I know that I was lost and helpless and Jesus found me. And I'm going to hold on to that reality. One answer is thinking back to the fact of, yeah, I was blind. But now I see. And one of the realities of being blind is, I now understand that I need to have a relationship with Christ. People who are blind to their blindness don't acknowledge that they need a relationship with Christ. When somebody comes in and they express that fear of, I don't know whether I'm saved or not, my soul is put at ease because I think unsaved people don't worry if they're saved or not. Unsaved person is happy, blissful in their darkness, living their own way. The, the second reality that can assure us of our salvation is we get to see formerly blind people among us. Imagine the encouragement that this blind man was to these disciples. Imagine the encouragement that this blind man was to Jerusalem, who had just been told amazing realities that caused them to want to stone Christ. Like before Abraham was, I am. I am the light of the world. Uh, the, the, if the, um, I'm the water of life. All of these realities. And the people are spinning like, can I actually trust this? Is this true? Is this going on? And then at the very end of it, the capstone of it all is, okay, he just made a blind, a blind man see, yes, he's true. So if you're struggling out there and you're like, can I trust this? Sometimes as the body of Christ, we get the, as Hebrew calls it, the great cloud of witnesses to shore up our faith in him. Jesus leaves us and leaves this story by talking about judgment. 
I think this is where he's going back to the kingdom of man and kingdom of God. Because Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Which you might go, what in the world does that mean? And here's what it means. That those who think they have the right way based upon their own work and merit, they're going to be blind to the fact that they can't save themselves. Those who think that they are ruined and lost and are hopeless are going to receive the, receive the beautiful sight of Christ and his grace and mercy. And it wouldn't be a story in the Feast of Booths if the Pharisees didn't hear Jesus say these things and become mad. Because they, I think they picked up on the nuance. Are you calling us blind? We follow Moses. We follow Abraham. We have our laws. We have our rules. They go right back to all of the stuff they have to do. And Jesus just goes, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What's that mean? You think you can save yourself based upon the works of your own hands. Try it. It's not going to work. As I said, this man is a gift. Because we can see through this physical miracle that what Jesus said is true. Maybe you're out, out there today and you're still trying to assure yourself, save yourself by what you do. Maybe you woke up this morning and just... The, the pit of despair and angst because you realize I'm, I'm falling short, not doing enough. I need to prioritize things better in my life. I need to optimize things. My, my personal algorithm is, is, is falling short. I'm, I'm showing the fact that I'm weak and, and, and a sinner. The answer to that struggle is not doing more because the blind guy couldn't save himself. You could walk up to the blind guy all you want and say, see, Look, how many fingers am I holding up? I mean, all day long, every possible way. And he'd still be blind. In the same way, we don't have to fix our blindness. We just have to run to the one who can. And here's what he says. That he will give us sight. That he will give us life. That he will give us peace. That he will give us grace. And he will give us mercy. So if you're out there today and you are struggling, know that Christ is gracious and will allow those who don't see to see. One final thing. We, as the church, get to stand opposed to every other witness that we saw in this story. The disciples... The Pharisees, the crowd, his parents. I'll take the, the disciples out of it because they were having a whole other conversation. Everyone else saw this blind guy receive sight and they started to criticize. No one went out into the city and, say, and said, let me point you to the person who makes blind people see. As, the, as Christians, we have that opportunity Christ isn't 
physically here in bodily form any longer, but he's here. We can walk up to anyone indiscriminately and go, what you need is Christ and he will give you the grace and mercy that you so desperately need. Look to him. I hope that as we're going through John and as we're hearing these stories and as we hear the story of the blind man, that it wouldn't cause us to become mute or to just go, yeah, 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 that happened. It would compel us to proclaim the love and grace of Christ to those around us. Because who in the world lights a lamp and puts it under a basket? Who in the world hears about the amazing grace of God and remains quiet? And so, my exhortation to us all, myself included, is we get to proclaim the fact that we know a person who made a blind man see. And more importantly than that, we know a person who lived the perfect life that we all needed and is willing to offer that to us all by grace through faith. So we transition to communion. We get to celebrate just that reality. That what you will be judged by is not how well you can see. It's not how well you can pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. It's not the works of your own hands. It, you'll be judged by the finished work of Christ. And we get to do that with this table this morning. If you're here for the first time, um, or you're here struggling with all of this, I've, I've, I've pricked your heart talking about faith and belief and, and am I actually trusting, I, I would ask that you let these elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take of these elements to save us. We don't take of these elements to level up in our spirituality. We don't take of these elements to renew our vision. We take of these elements to remind ourselves that the reason we're good before God is because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of not us, but Christ. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for your amazing word and for this story. Thank you that 2,000 years later we get to hear of this no-name blind guy. You divinely, miraculously chose to demonstrate your glory, first to Jerusalem and now to us. Lord, help us to hear these stories and to be compelled to share. Help us to hear these stories and to have our faith and assurance renewed in you. Help us to hear these stories and for us not to run further and farther back into the kingdom of man, but for us to recognize the beauty and sufficiency of Christ. I thank you for this time. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.